up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about breast cancer surgery options. Currently, the standard of care for all breast cancer is surgery, whether it's going to be a lumpectomy that just removes a mass or a mastectomy which removes the whole breast. Then we'll learn about how poverty impacts health care and what Upstate is doing about it. It's, um, it's critically important for us to invite our community partners to help to take care of these people and to really try to help them to have the best outcomes possible. And we'll explore what it takes to become involved in a mission trip to Ghana that was organized by an upstate nurse. As long as somebody can prescribe, we, we bring um, prescription medications, and that's probably the hardest thing to organize before we go. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse, coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear from a nurse about providing health care to vulnerable populations. Then, a nurse will explain why she began volunteering to help people in Ghana. But first, we'll talk with a surgeon about options for breast cancer surgery. Today we're talking about breast cancer surgery options at Upstate with an assistant professor of surgery, Dr. Lisa Lai. Thank you for being here, Dr. Lai. Thank you, Amber. Uh, now you went to SUNY Buffalo School of Medicine and you did your surgical residency here at Upstate and then a fellowship in breast surgical oncology at Emory University School of Medicine before you returned to Upstate. So tell us how you chose to specialize in breast surgery and, and what your training was like. I think I was mainly attracted to breast surgery due to the love of the patients. We really form a nice bond together and have a chance to get to know each other well in the initial phase, which involves, you know, the, the pre-surgical phase and the post-operative care, as well as the years that follow then um, as they come for their follow-up appointments. So I think um, it began with just a natural bond with the patients. Um, I love the fact also that I'm treating cancer um, and love that the patients generally tend to do very well um, once they've been treated. So that's a longer-term relationship than some surgeons have with their patients. So you're following mostly women, right? Mostly. I have a handful of men, but mostly women. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, too, you know, I like that we get to work as a team. So breast cancer treatment does not just involve the surgeon, but involves medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, a plastic surgeon, pathologist, um, etc. So and we really work as a team to come up with the best plan that fits the patient's needs. And uh, we're constantly evaluating how we can do things differently and better and um, what the newest advancements are in breast cancer treatment. So I think as a team, we come up with um, really the, the best plan that we can for the patients. So these days, uh, when someone hears that they have um, breast cancer, 
Does that always involve some sort of surgery? For the most part. Um, currently, the standard of care for all breast cancer is surgery. And um, most patients have options regarding the surgery, um, whether it's going to be a lumpectomy that just removes a mass or a mastectomy, which removes the whole breast. Um, and there are many different ways to do the two. Um, it also usually involves sampling a lymph node under the arm and may remove, uh, may involve removing more lymph nodes under the arm. And why, do, why are the lymph nodes, why is that part of? If the cancer has spread, the first place it would go would probably be the lymph node under the arm. So okay, we, so that'll tell you whether it has spread? Mm-hmm. Okay. Hmm, okay. Um, it, now, you mentioned that you, you, know, you work with the patients. What sorts of decisions would um, someone facing breast cancer have? Would they, would they have a say in whether they have a lumpectomy or a mastectomy necessarily? Or... What are some of the decisions that they would face? Most patients have options as to what surgery they can have. Unless, oh, you know, it seems that it's a bigger tumor or that it has uh, spread a little more aggressively in the chest, then they may not have so many options. But uh, most women with early stage breast cancer have options for lumpectomy or mastectomy. And uh, we have, you know, all sorts of newer and more advanced surgical techniques that can help, um, you know, lessen the surgical burden for them, whether it's finding ways to save their nipple, like a nipple-sparing mastectomy, or enhance the overall cosmetic appearance of the breast after surgery, such as combining a lumpectomy with a breast lift, which is known as an oncoplastic surgery or oncoplastic reduction. Um, We also have newer ways to make the scars smaller or hide them. So um, we work very closely with a plastic surgeon as well and enjoy being able to customize a surgical plan that best suits the patient's needs. Um, When you mentioned plastic surgeon, now that makes me think of reconstruction. Is that combined with a surgery to remove the cancer often? Most times, the surgery to remove the cancer and the reconstruction are done at the same time. Um, So the patient wakes up having completed both operations. Other times, you know, the patient may feel like they can really only focus on treatment of cancer at the time, so they opt to delay the reconstruction until after the cancer treatment is completed. Um, Other times, we recommend that they delay that reconstruction. So we recommend that we focus on just simply treating cancer and making sure they do well from that standpoint and then addressing the reconstruction um, question later later on. Um, There's always an option, you know, to help the patient, you know, from an appearance and, you know, physical standpoint um, in terms of the reconstruction. So whether they have a mastectomy without reconstruction, you know, we have bras and prosthesis and things so that when the patient, as I often tell them, when you're walking around town, you're fully clothed and everyone's around you, not a single person is going to know that you ever had the surgery. Okay, neat. Now, sometimes is surgery the end of the treatment? They're done? Or do is there chemo and or radiation that follows? It depends on the type of cancer 
um, as well as the op the surgery that we perform. So um, I think most people tend to think of, of breast cancer as one type of cancer, but within it there are many, many different subtypes um, which are treated a little bit differently from each other. So some types of cancer of breast cancer need chemotherapy, others don't. Um, as far as radiation, it's almost always needed if you have a lumpectomy and usually not needed if you have a mastectomy, but there are caveats to those. So well. very individualized. Very individualized. And the decision is usually made um, at the time of planning for the operation because we also have ways to deliver radiation through a catheter um, immediately following the surgery. So some women will opt for this catheter to be placed at the time of their operation. So that's something that we need to know up front and plan for sure. ahead of time. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Lisa Lai, a breast surgeon at the Upstate Cancer Center. Um, well, you've walked me through kind of the, the treatments that are offered today, the standard of care today. Um, can you fast forward and look ahead a decade or two? How do you think breast cancer is liable to be treated in the coming years? Well, that's a really fascinating question, Amber. It's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I think if we look at the trend, for example, if we look at where breast cancer surgery was 40 years ago, you know, all women were being treated with radical mastectomies, which was, you know, radical removal of the breast tissue, all the lymph nodes and the muscles beneath it. That's an operation that is almost never done these days. Um, so we evolved from radical mastectomies to mastectomies that remove less of the surrounding tissue, tissue so just the breast and uh, some of the lymph nodes. Um, we then evolved to where patients needed all their lymph nodes removed to could then have them sampled, and also from doing mastectomies in all patients to being able to offer lumpectomies for early stage breast cancer. So looking at the trend, the trend has always been to do less and less surgery. So where we are currently, um, it may seem counterintuitive, but there's nothing really that excites me more as a breast surgeon than to be able to offer the patient less surgery. Um, because we never want to do more than what they need or can have a benefit from because, you know, there's downsides to having surgery too. So um, where we stand currently, um, our cancer center has opened several major national trials that can help um, patients with certain types of cancer either reduce the amount of surgery they have or perhaps avoid it altogether. Wow. Um, for example, we just opened the um, COMET trial for ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS. That's the earliest stage of the breast cancer. Stage, breast cancer? stage okay. zero breast cancer. And this trial um, will have um, the option uh, for patients to have um, treatment of their cancer that is not operative, that simply involves medicine and very careful surveillance. So um, we're very excited to have these options for patients. And it, it seems like the future is truly evolving to, towards it. less 
operative and possibly non-operative care of breast wow. cancer. And so this is a trial that's underway here now. And if people are interested in that, um, we will place a link to the Cancer Center website on our page, which is healthlinkonair.org, or people can go to upstate.edu slash cancer um, to find some more information on how to get involved in that. So mm -hmm. are there um, other things on the horizon, too? Yes. I mean, you know, in terms of the surgeries, um, we're finding ways to do, you know, more advanced te techniques with smaller scars, uh, more hidden scars, um, less invasive ways of doing surgery. Um, for example, at the recent American Society of Breast Surgeons, there was a really beautiful demonstration of doing a lumpectomy without an incision and without any sutures, using really? a device that could go in and collect the tumor in a basket-type uh, container and then remove it through a catheter. Wow. And um, there are several trials ongoing that are actually... Um, cryo-ablating the tumor or freezing it. So rather than making an incision to remove it, a catheter is being inserted through the skin into the tumor to freeze it and then allow it, that tissue to die and, and that tumor to disappear. So um, it really seems that at least for some patients and for some types of breast cancer that... Um, less invasive and um, less surgical options are on the horizon. Well, tell me a little bit about, because you treat other breast conditions besides cancer. What are, what are some of the other things that you see? There's really a tremendous variety. Um, I see many women um, who come in with uh, benign breast disease such as benign breast masses or cysts or breast pain or who come because they've had an abnormal mammogram and need help understanding it and whether they need a biopsy or they come because there is you know a higher incidence of breast cancer in their family and in their relatives and they're concerned about their own risk and they want to have extra attention for breast exams and breast screening and to learn how they can reduce their risk. So um, we really have a lot to offer um, depending on you know the patient's um, complaint or condition, but there are many things we can do um, that we do every day in our office that are not necessarily surgical or for breast cancer, but are overall helping the patient understand their breast disease or breast condition or breast cancer risk. That's very good to know. Thank you for being here. My guest has been breast surgeon Lisa Lai from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. up, How Poverty Impacts Healthcare, on Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Now we're going to talk with an upstate nurse about health care for vulnerable populations. In the studio with me is Diane Nano. She's a clinical nurse specialist and director of transitional care at Upstate. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Amber. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start by explaining for our listeners what is transitional care. So transitional care um, broadly is really how we transition patients across the continuum. Um, so typically we talk about when patients um, are in the hospital and then how they, how they move um, with really the, the goal or objective of seamlessly to the next setting, whether it be home, whether it be home with services, whether it's to a skilled nursing facility, really anywhere that a patient might go. Um, and that um, and that the patient has the the, the right care um, to be taken care of after the hospital that they understand their health condition that they have access to and understand their medications and any treatments that they have and that they have wraparound services that that they need um, really with the goal of um, the best outcome with reducing uh, readmissions to the hospital and really reducing necessary emergency department visits. Okay, so that they um, leave the hospital and, and go on to continue healing um, and getting better on their own at home or like you mentioned, a nursing home or something. Right, That's right. And really, we also look at the patient experience. Just, you know, the, the more comfortable somebody feels in taking care of themselves or in the setting that's taking care of them, the, the less likely they would be to have a poor outcome. Okay. Well, that seems like a tall order for any patient, let alone someone um, that's in poverty. So let's talk about poverty and how that affects someone's, well, really their hospital stay and and then the whole continuum. Um, What does poverty do to that equation? Sure. So... Um, there was there was actually a recent um, a recent article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that says that really says that there's a there's a difference in life expectancy with some, in somebody on the poverty um, in poverty level of 10 to 15 years, which certainly um, is significant. And when you look at our our region and um, the city of Syracuse, if we're looking at that. Um, we have a very high rate of poverty with about a, a third of Syracuse, city of Syracuse, living below the poverty level. So as, as you can see, we're, um, we, we really take care of a, a, a large That's portion. That's a big portion. So what are the reasons for a 10 to 15 year less lifespan for someone living in poverty? Is it because they can't afford medicines that are prescribed or can't afford health care or can't afford food, proper food, all of those things? All of those things. So it's interesting because poverty is described as, as a cause and a consequence of, of poor health. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes uh, people are in be- poor health because of their poverty or some people, you know, uh, may be below the poverty line because of poor health. It doesn't really matter what causes what, but we there's definitely causality with these social determinants. So as you mentioned, um, things like access to health care, low, underinsured um, uh, or no insurance at all, um, really inadequate housing, homelessness, um, lack of informal supports, 
low literacy, um, low numeracy. So if you send someone home with a dosage of medication, they may not understand what that means. Um, violence, um, we know that within our city, limits violence is, is really a real problem for us. Um, with, um, with women, um, women can have inadequate prenatal care because of all the, the things that uh, I just men mentioned. And people within the poverty um, level tend to have um, babies with lower birth weights. Mm -hmm. Poor nutrition, access to medication, as, as you mentioned. Um, there's something called toxic stress that just living in a, in a uh, poverty environment can cause. Um, and, you know, toxic environments like poor sanitation, um, water that um, is, not, um, is not what it should be, education can be sub-poor, people who are, live within poverty are more likely to smoke, um, dangerous neighborhoods, as we mentioned, there's a higher rate of obesity, um, there is a problem, especially within the inner city, of lead-contaminated water, um, dental and vision disparities in children, lack of preventative care, there's more chronic disease, um, tends to be lower physical activity and higher rates of addiction. Mm. So if you look at zip codes um, where we know that poverty exists within, the within Syracuse proper, um, within certain zip codes, people are two and a half times more likely to be admitted to the hospital. So once someone is admitted, um, for, for whatever reason, um, if they have, end up having surgery or they have to stay for days or weeks, um, how do you prepare to discharge that person if they don't have a home to return to? What, I mean, you're up against, what do you do right. for that person? So that's why it's, um, it's critically important for us to invite our community partners to, to partner with us um, to help to take care of these people and to really try to help them to have the best outcomes possible. So we've, we've done a couple of different things. One thing we've done is invite our community partners into the hospital. So we're embedding um, community partners. Um, who, who are the community us. partners? So, um, so we have, um, there's something called Health Home, and I, I'll explain a little bit about what that is. So those are um, care managers. There are two lead health homes in our area. St. Joseph's is one of them. CERCARE is the other. Um, we're primarily um, partnering with, with the, the embedded care manager um, with CERCARE, where we have a CERCARE care manager actually come into the hospital, we give them space in the hospital, and they help us to manage um, these folks. So um, they go out to the communities, they help with things like housing and transportation and food and access to medical care, they help to get people to their primary care appointments and things like that. So that's certainly a piece of it. In addition to that, we, are, we partner with our shelters, so the Rescue Mission and Salvation Army. Certainly, we partner with um, home care agencies, such as the Visiting Nurse Association, HCR Home Care, St. Camilla's Home Care, just really to name a few. Um, and another important partner of, us is, of ours is hospice, um, specifically hospice of central New York in this county, but also um, we serve 17 counties, so all of the outlying areas as well. So, um, so, we, so we know that we can control just so much about what happens when people 
uh, leave the hospital and really sure. sort of tee them up for um, good outcomes. But it's really very important for our community agencies to be part of that plan of care and to help um, and to help take care of folks really where they live. Interesting. All right. Well, what types of services um, are available here in Central New York? Sure. So, um, so there's uh, transportation. Um, there's the health home that um, that I mentioned. There is. Um, Home health, so it's a little bit confusing. Neither of them is a home. Um, so, But home health really um, takes care of the clinically complex patients. So patients who, uh, who go home with maybe complex wounds, complex um, medication regimens, um, really, you know, uh, a lot of education, really the clinical piece of it. So they can provide nursing. They can provide physical and occupational therapy. They can provide aid service, nutrition services, social work um, at home, and they, they can also work in concert with the health home that I mentioned. There are also things like medical daycare um, or medical, uh, medical day programs where when people have very complex um, care that they can, they, can, they can actually go to a medical day program and have their medications managed and wounds managed, diabetes, things like that. Um, that's really important. Okay. Skilled nursing facilities. So we partner with, um, with a variety of skilled nursing facilities that, um, that really help to provide care with us. And we're also looking at what the handoff looks like. So when people are going from the hospital to another facility, whether it be skilled nursing or home care or the others, that we're really painting a very clear picture of what that, what that person needs when they go to the next setting um, in order, again, to, to help them have the best outcomes. Um, another example is we work with a lot of um, with a really a, a large number of resettled refugees. Hmm. So we, um, we work with uh, refugee coalitions and groups to really help to understand um, and really address cultural language needs, um, that type of thing. And certainly the housing and, and the education, all, all of those pieces are really important. It's also um, really key for us to help those folks learn how to navigate our system because e even things like transportation is is uh, a very hard thing for folks to understand. Oh, I imagine. Yes, right. yes. Um, another very important piece of, of what we do is making sure that people have access to behavioral and mental health services. So community partners such as CMY Services, Liberty Resources, and certainly our own um, psychiatric um, care is very key um, for us to make sure that people are connected with and connected in a very timely manner so their medications can be, um, can be uh, monitored. Um, primary care. So we have, we have some of our own primary care. So um, we've got primary care within our network, but we're also uh, partnering with other primary care, such as Syracuse Community Health Center, is a very important um, partner for us. And the primary care is to help, hopefully, offer preventive services to keep people healthier. Correct. And out of crisis. Yes. Right? Yes. 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 
I've heard um, Upstate University Hospital referred to as a safety net hospital. What does that mean? So we serve a large um, portion of the Medicaid population. So this, this poverty that we've been talking about, um, the, the population that, that Upstate serves is about 35% Medicaid, and that doesn't even include those who are uninsured. So tell me about the programs that Upstate has to help address this. The first is what we call our intensive transitions team. The team consists of social workers, case managers, and a nurse practitioner. And what they do is they they create a cross-setting care plan with our community partners to address what makes that person most at risk. They're wrapping around those services. They're also making home visits. They're accompanying patients to primary care appointments. They're handing off to home care, health home, and they follow that patient from um, 30 to 45 days post-discharge to just to ensure that those services are in place, that they're meeting the needs, um, and they're bringing in other services as needed. Great. Great. Yes. So another program really that I'd like to highlight is we've got an emergency department navigator in place and who is a social worker and her primary purpose is really to connect people who are not connected with primary care with a primary care uh, provider. Okay. In addition we have a pain task force um, that is actually led by our assistant director of of, uh, transitional care. The pain task force really looks at um, addiction um, specifically opioids, and uh, which, which we know is a huge, huge issue, issue right. in our community, really nationwide, um, but certainly in our community, um, to really look at connecting people to programs um, that can, can both identify when there's an opioid addiction, but also really help us to prevent those addictions and get people connected to services. And then the fourth that I think is important to highlight is um, called VPOP. So it's Violence Education Prevention Outreach Program. When, when patients come in, we are providing them with services, social work, um, physicians, trauma physicians, to really um, aim at decreasing the rate of recidivism around violent trauma. So, um, so, and we actually just hired a social worker who's specific to this, um, to this program that's go- going to be making home visits along with others to really, um, to really help get people connected, particular, really everyone, but in, in particular young people um, with, with education, with, with that type of thing, um, along with our community partners. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. My guest has been Upstate Nurse Diane Nano, a clinical nurse specialist and director of transitional care at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Fangs and claws and snapping jaws or reweaving the fragile fabric. Well folks, our brains have an ancient core of freeze, flight, fight. I call it grizzly central. And its bloodlust, if overactivated, can ruin our relationships, damage our immune system and heart, 
and kill us prematurely. Luckily, our more recent grizz-taming how-can-I-work-with-y'all prefrontal cortex can be calming and love and life preserving. Now, as we know, politics the last few years has been fang and claw, personal attack. In my memory, such election year nastiness is usually retracted after election day when the victor and loser called together for healing and cooperating. But seemingly not so this time. And you know, the way leaders behave is mimicked. So now we're seeing more hate-filled confrontation and crime. Even highly respected newspaper columnists are name-calling rather than offering fact-based editorials. Us and them, us and them, we good, you bad. This talk pokes the ancient brain into claws and fangs, and they are ripping into our dance clubs and highways and trains and planes and baseball fields. They're shredding the fragile fabric of civility that our prefrontal cortex weaves, and they're dragging us underwater. Civility is hard won. It's based on trust, on thousands of moments when we listen to each other with respect, with a patient, honest search to understand. It means managing the anger and the impulse for revenge when we feel others are being unjust. Now, what to do at that moment when this rage snorts and the fanged words are surging in our minds? Well, Note our bloodlust surging and slow down. Breathe slow and deep. Feel our feet on the ground. And when we're ready, reweave trust with listening. Say, let me see if I understand your point of view. And then try to say the heart of the person's message. Keep trying until that person says, yes, you really understand me. Listen for the heart of the message. Yeah, listen for the heart. We all have one of those. I'm Rich O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Coming up next, a mission trip to Ghana. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Lori Ruprak is an upstate nurse who began taking service trips to Ghana in Africa in 2010 and created the nonprofit organization ASAP, American Serving Abroad Projects, in 2014. Since then, the group has made six service trips to Ghana to provide health care and education, and the next is taking place this fall. 
Lori's here to talk about this effort along with nurse Caitlin Phelan, who volunteered on a trip to Ghana this past spring. Thank you both for being here. Thank, Thank you, you for inviting us. So, Lori, let's start by talking about how this program has developed over the years. So ASAP has really grown um, since we started doing our group trips in 2013. Our programs have grown and expanded. Um, we're now separating our trips um, into a medical-focused um, trip and a community service focused um, trips. So, two so different we're doing trips. Two, two different trips a year. So, um, and you and target, you mostly go to rural areas that don't have access or have limited access to, to health care and other services. Okay. Yes. We always go to different areas and we always go to um, remote areas that don't have the services. Um, so our first trip, we had 10 volunteers in 2013, and the last trip in March, we had 26 volunteers. So we've really grown um, over the last few years. And you've been um, uh, in Ghana uh, for all of the trips. Are you looking ahead to expand? We are. So all of our trips to date have been to, to Ghana, but probably in the fall of 2018, we're looking to expand to other countries in Africa. Okay. All right, I want to hear from Caitlin about her experience as a volunteer. But first, Lori, can you give me some statistics about the impact your group has had in Ghana? Sure. So the latest uh, statistics that are out there um, show that 10,000 people in rural, rural areas have provi been provided with free health care services. Many of those people have never seen a, a medical provider before. Mm. 30,000 people have received free services or supplies, either medical, dental, or school supplies. Okay. 15 clinics and hospitals have received donated medications and medical equipment. And approximately 75 volunteers have gone on trips with ASAP. Wow. Okay. And some are repeat volunteers, yes. right? Mm -hmm. They go yes. on different ones. Well, Caitlin, um, so why did you decide to make the trip this past spring um well i always knew i wanted to do um mission trips there was a nurse in the class ahead of me in nursing school who had gone on a trip with lori and so i had kind of been following um the program for a while my pediatric instructor goes every year um and so this last year i had seen that they were going in march and another nurse that i work with on my floor said hey i saw you liked this page on facebook i really want to go do you want to go with me and i said yeah I, I think i probably do so she pushed me to ask my manager say hey ask for the time off so we can both go together um and so that's kind of how it happened neat well what uh, what what was it like um it was it was awesome um it was different and the similar to what I kind of expected going in. Um, I knew we were going to be in areas that were pretty underserved and um, not what we were used to at all. Um, I think the biggest difference was just the people in general and just how appreciative and excited and happy they were just to see us every day, even though some of them I just was handing vitamins to and they just thought it was the coolest thing ever to see us and hang out with us. So that was really, really neat. Did it feel like you were making an impact or a difference? I think so, yeah. Um, just seeing, you know, the, how the little things that we kind of take for granted that we were doing for them just made a huge difference in that day and how they were able to do, like, live their lives after that. It was really very awesome to see. So. Um, how did you communicate? Well, we had a lot of translators. Um, okay. So a lot of, like, local nurses um, or nursing students came and translated for us at the clinic. So it was neat to work 
with them and see how they did their nursing training. And then they also translated for us so that we could talk to um, everyone. Some of the people there did speak English very well, and we were able to just talk with them. But a lot of them, we had to talk with the translators, which was also a cool experience. Neat. Well, would you go back? <laughs> Absolutely. I definitely would. It was a very, very life-changing and humbling experience, and I would definitely do it again. <laughs> Um, well, you, would you encourage other medical providers to, to do a trip like this? Yeah, and actually we've already been telling people on our unit, you guys should go on this trip. It's really neat. And it, you just you come back with a different perspective on just healthcare in general and how, um, how different things are outside of the United States and how you kind of have to adapt your um, healthcare experiences and what you know to fit what you're given and what you're working with. Neat. Well, Lori, let's talk about the next trips that you have coming up because, like you said, there you're doing two different trips now, one that's focused on the medical provisions and then one that's focused on community development. Right. So the um, trip coming up, in it's scheduled for November 10th through the 21st of 2017. It's a community development program. Um, and one of the main programs that we're going to do is a, a program developed by the Days for Girls organization. Um, we'll be bringing washable sanitary pads to distribute to the girls. Um, and it and comes. Wh- why is that important? It's it's extremely important because a lot of the girls in Ghana that drop out of school when they reach puberty because they don't have any way to manage their menses. So um, these. The pads that we'll be bringing are washable. They last for like three years so that the girls have a way to um, still stay in school. Um, And uh, another program that we're going to be doing on that trip is I'm excited about. It's a new program, a soccer program. So we're looking for some soccer coaches that would like to go with us. Um, We'll do some soccer clinics in in these rural villages and um, we're collecting soccer uniforms to donate to them and then at the end we'll have a, a tournament with the schools and the um, volunteers and so. soccer is the popular sport oh, yeah, there. That's yeah. It. yeah so neat neat now um, this trip is open to non-medical yes anybody can go on this trip um, there's no special skills that you need other than if you're a soccer coach <laughs> um but anybody can apply. Um, it's going to be a 10-day trip. Um, generally, the cost will be between $2,300 and $2,500. Um, volunteers all pay their own expenses. Um, a lot of times they'll do their own fundraising. We do fundraising as a group to get uh, money for supplies for our trips. Okay. So the twenty-three dollars to $2,500 covers... Flight, um, flight, accommodations, food, water. Um, we'll do a safari. We always do cultural events. Um, that's an integral part of our program. Um, that's so all there included. is like some downtime to yes. do some of the... Mm-hmm. Because I think c- the cultural aspect is really important. It's really important to know the culture of the people you're taking care of. So that's always included. Um, and the safari is a nice break in between work days. Um, and uh, so it includes pretty much everything except for um, immunizations are required before you go. So you have to visit a travel clinic and get those. That's not included in the price. And passport, of course. Um, you have to have a passport um, and a visa. And I take care of getting the visas and the flights and all that. All that. Um, 
stuff. So everyone goes as a group on the same flight generally? or Yes. Um, so we fly from Syracuse to JFK, and then it's a direct flight from JFK to Accra. And it's about 10 to 11 hour flight. So what are the accommodations like? Because you're out in remote areas, Yes. Right? So so we generally stay in a larger village, um, and we stay usually in a guest house, sometimes a hotel. Um, it Our accommodations have running water and flush toilets and a bed. <laughs> um, okay. Other than that, you know, it kind of we go to a different different area every time, so you know, it's always kind of a surprise. But um, so rustic. Then, yes, and then we travel every day, an hour to an hour and a half, out to our work villages. Okay, what um, what is the food like? Um, it's okay. Um, there's a lot of chicken and rice. Chicken. Um, so our partners in Ghana, um, kind of supervise the food aspect. And, um, so there's only certain foods that we can eat. We can't eat the vegetables because they put a a pesticide. They use a pesticide that we can't eat. So we don't eat a lot of vegetables. There's a lot of awesome fruits. Um, like I said, chicken and rice, beans and rice, um, not a huge variety, but it's it's good. What we get is good, and and um, you don't go there for the food, but. right? Right. <laughs> and you bring water. You bring bottled water, or is bottled um, water so provided? we are provided with bottled water or bagged water. Like they have hygienic water okay. in plastic bags that you chew off the end and drink it like that. So in the field, we use the bagged water. At the end of the day, are you just totally exhausted? Caitlin, what was that like for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, we were exhausted, but then everyone would get back to where we were staying, and they all kind of, we all just wanted to kind of sit up and hang out and talk about what how the day went, stuff that everyone else was seeing, um, and just kind of hang out. So even though we were exhausted, we still would end up staying up later and then going to bed and waking up really early for the next day. So you were tired, but it was a happy tired. So you're going to different remote areas every day. Then. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a, a big part of the area that you come to. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. And was, um, what we've started doing is going back um, to each village once. So we'll do one village two times so that we can follow up on some of the things that we saw the first time. Yeah. Um, and that's been it, that's worked out well because then the providers get to see that what they're doing is helping. Um, how, how do you get around? Is there a lot of walking? Um, there is some walking. Um, we travel in an air-conditioned bus. Um, so our partners in Ghana, who, who do all the groundworks for our projects, um, they pick us up at the airport in an air-conditioned bus. All, of, all the supplies go under the bus, and that's the way we travel throughout the country. Neat. So. And supplies, what type of supplies do you bring with you? Um, well, for the, for the medical trips, it's a lot of medication. Um, Prescription or just uh, over the counter or both? Both. Okay. Um, as long as we have, we always have nurse practitioners, doctors, um, PAs with us. So as long as somebody can prescribe, we, we bring, um, prescription medications. We have a whole pharmacy and that's probably the hardest thing to organize before we go, um, and then we, we bring school supplies, we bring soccer balls, um, shoes, um, just a wide variety of things, whatever we can fit. 
Well, I want to make sure listeners know where to go for more information. Um, mm-hmm. You have a website, uh, www.asap.ngo, um, and it has all sorts of information about the upcoming trips and more about the background of um, right. Americans serving abroad projects. Right, and there's also a volunteer application on that, the website. If So if you're interested, you can just um, fill that out, and that will go directly to me, and I'll contact you. Wonderful. My guests have been Upstate Nurse Caitlin Phelan and Upstate Nurse Lori Ruprak, who is the founder and president of Americans Serving Abroad Project. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Two of our poets were considering how family, literally and figuratively, impacts the individual, imprinting on him or her notions of responsibility, memories. Judith Trice, poet, fiction writer, essayist, and retired lawyer, gives us a poem that looks on the page like a ship's prow, the perfect image from which to think about her place in the family. Here is Judith Trice's I Dream of Genealogy. I am standing there at the prow of a ship, peering into the fog, spray in my face, sails snapping, boards creaking, and fanned out behind me my parents, my grands, my greats and great-greats, in dutiful lines, bobbing and nodding. A shout from the stern asks, where are we going? And though someone else set the sails, I look down to find a wheel in my hands. Jennifer Campbell, an English professor from Buffalo, New York, explores the science behind fetal microchimerism, uh, the fact that fetal cells linger in a pregnant woman's body long after she gives birth. Here is Campbell's poem, When Sense Makes Sense, for Jacob. I didn't need to do research to know you are a part of me still, but I appreciate the name given to your healing properties. I am a microchimera, your fetal cells absorbed into my body, sealing off my liver, heart, brain to invasion, lengthening my life, and it's your Y chromosomes wrestling with your big brothers, emerging in my expressions of strength. And though it doesn't always work this way, I know it's not your ashes I hold on to. I hold on to your pure multiplying. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. On next week's show, HealthLink on Air takes a look at congenital heart disease and the importance of medication adherence. If you missed any of today's show, 
Listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.